0: Father, I want to thank you that your presence is here right now. I know you live in our heart, but for some reason, Jesus, you said, we're two or more gathered. There you are in their midst. And in a different way, in a very tangible, I believe, way, you are here, tabernacled in the praises of, our, of your people, here in our midst to move among us and, yes, move in us. By your spirit, would you speak truth to the inner man. By your spirit, would you open our hearts to receive it, to give us ears to hear what you would have to say to us through your word, We ask this all in Jesus' name, amen. I remember several years ago, and forgive me, I am an Eagles fan, so this story is just a little bit hard for me to tell because it had to do with Super Bowl 51. Now, for for most of you, Super Bowl 51 was just another one of those uh, Super Bowls. It's like, okay, like, who won? Who cares? Um, (coughs) However, in this particular Super Bowl, certain records were set. I was ready to turn off the TV set at halftime for this reason. The Falcons were playing the Patriots. And the Falcons were considered the underdogs, but they were destroying the Patriots. The Patriots couldn't get their game together. Tom Brady could not put the ball into the hands of any of his receivers. The Patriots were completely shut down. At the beginning of the third quarter, the Falcons drove for another touchdown, making the score 28 to three. I was ready to reach over and say, nope, not anymore. I wanna go to bed, or I wanna get some good, night's rest, or I wanna do something different. But something happened so that the Patriots scored, now let me, I wanna make sure I get this right, 31 straight points, unanswered. It went into overtime where the Patriots ended up winning 34 to 28. Here's my question, and here's the reason why I'm doing this, because it's not in my heart to praise the, the Patriots necessarily, because they played the Philadelphia Eagles, and need I say more? You remember that Super Bowl. The truth is, yes, I'm a diehard Eagles fan. The truth is, I wonder at halftime when it was 21 to 3, What Bill Belichick, who's the coach of the the Patriots, what his speech was to the Patriots. I wonder what he said to say, hey, guys, what are you doing out there? We are an, an amazing team. We're not playing like it today, but we have the arsenal to put this team down and bury them six feet under. Where are you? every single one of you, where are you? I am calling you to charge forward. When we go out on that field, I'm challenging you to give it your all and leave it out there on the field. Something along these lines. I wonder what Bill Belichick said to be able to inspire this team that was being absolutely crushed when you look at the statistics. I just felt so bad, well, technically I guess I didn't, but the truth is, wow, if I were on that team, I would feel so bad, right? I wonder what was Bill Belichick's halftime speech like? What happened in there that spoke to the downtrodden nearly destroyed Pats that caused them to refocus, regain strength and determination, and lead them to victory? I wonder. Now, let me just say this today. Numerous churches were recently burned to the ground in Canada. Cancer culture, excuse me, cancer. I guess it is a cancer. Cancel culture seeks to attack and marginalize Christianity in America. A communist threat in our country, rooted obviously in socialism, is strongly present to upend our nation and push Christianity to the fringe, if not completely push it out, denying them a voice. The persecution and, Christ- and, and the persecution and martyrdom of Christians worldwide is at an all-time high in our day. Many in our day are wondering, if this is a cause if in this cosmic battle between good and evil and God and the devil, and God and good appear to be losing, why should I remain in the fight? for the losing team. Now, if you don't think that my question is apropos, look around at the church today and what do you see? Can can I be honest? You see massive compromise. You see people backpedaling from the staunch claims of the gospel that Jesus is the only way, truth, and life that there is a certain standards of right and wrong that are birthed from the very heart and holiness of God that we're abandoning. Why? Because it's offensive to people. The church in our day appears to be losing. The result of this is that many are backpedaling. Many are saying, maybe we should re-examine our Christian roots that go all the way back to its birthing almost 2,000 years ago. Maybe there's a different way to interpret the Bible. Maybe, (laughs) maybe we should re-examine it all and not take such a hard stance on truth. After all, this person believes this and this person believes this and who are we to say who's right and who's wrong? Maybe nobody's right, or maybe everyone is right. Try to figure that one out, right? And if people aren't backpedaling like that, according to what is truth and what's not, can I just say that many are backpedaling, and they're just saying, I hate losing. I hate looking around and feeling as if it's all worth nothing. I'm serving, or at least trying to serve Jesus Christ for what purpose? And their response to this crisis is to shift life into neutral. Why sacrifice so much for so little gain, if any gain at all? Do you, do you hear what I'm, what I'm sharing with you this morning? This is where we're at. And many people, their response is either let me compromise or let me give up. Why press forward so hard to the point where many are losing their lives, church? We support a large sum of money every month to Forefront Forefront Mission in northern India. Dinesh Dinesh Chand and his wife, Rachel, have a ministry along with others that are on their team ministering to various churches to link them together to help plant churches, money that goes through them, funnels to these churches to help in that in that respect, <clears throat> to be able to see those who are poor uh, trained to learn other businesses like sewing and, and such, to be able to put uh, bicycles or motorcycles into the hands of pastors who pastor numerous churches and have to do a lot of traveling. And, and this is what they're doing and they're, they're advancing the gospel. They're training leaders and they're effective in what they're doing. But let me tell you this. That even though we, I read to you just a, a few months ago the amazing reports of what God is doing and those that are being saved and such, can I just say this? that especially in northern India, many Christians, including pastors, have lost their lives. Guys, why work so hard if we're only losing? So it feels. I wonder what God would say to his church during this hour of what appears to be near defeat. I wonder what God would say to help us refocus Regain strength and determination and lead us to lead this generation into victory. But the answer to that question is different than the answer to my question about Bill Belichick. Because with him, I said, I wonder. But I'm going to tell you this. The answer to, my, to that question is not, I, I wonder. But it is, I do not wonder. Because God has given us his halftime charge. He's given it to us in the words, it's found in the book of Revelation. Now, I'm not going to be having us go through the entire book of Revelation, to my knowledge. Right now, the Lord has just shown me we're going to be going through the first five chapters. But we're going to start seeing some parallels between what was going on then and what is going on now. And the the truths that were communicated in those first five chapters are timeless truths that we can identify with and we can begin to live out with passion because we know the end of the book. And it is victory. Regardless of what you're seeing with your eyes, there is victory. Now, we may have to redefine what defeat even is. And I'm going to suggest to you that defeat is not the mass martyrdom of Christians. It's not. We're gonna get into that some more. We're gonna to need to redefine what victory is. And victory is not, I get to live to a ripe old age. That is not victory. Praise God for the years that He gives us. But that's not victory. Even if I'm a Christian, that's not victory, Paul says. Whether I'm in the body or I go on to be the, with the Lord. It doesn't matter. There's a blessing either way, but I am convinced of this. I will remain in the body to be a blessing to you, Philippians 1. Either way, church, there is victory because it's not about how many days I live on this earth. It is about how I use those days, short or long. That alone is the victory. That alone is the victory. So John is writing this book called The Revelation of Jesus Christ. It's not called Revelations, though there are many revealings or revelations. The first word in this book is apocalypsis, which is singular, a revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, many have suggested that he wrote it before the fall of the temple in 78 A.D. There are reasons for that that fit their hermeneutic. That is how they now seek to interpret Revelation. I can understand that they have some good points. They would generally fall in that uh, area of interpretation called the preterist or the idealist view. But I I don't hold to those strictly. Actually, there's four views. I don't hold to any of them strictly. I would be a little bit what they might call eclectic. But whether you are a futurist or a historicist, the other two views, or a preterist or idealist, and I've even told you what those are, and here's why, though I will talk about the futurist in just a moment. And it's because it's only when we get past chapter five that how you end up viewing revelation really ends up becoming important, okay? Okay. But we're just going to stick with the first five chapters. So regardless of how you have chosen in your pastor, maybe you just said, Pastor Mike, everything that you just said in the last 60 seconds, it was like wah, 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 and I don't care. I just love to read the book of Revelation. Well, believe it or not, you have a view of it. Much of your view, however, has probably been brought to you through our Christian culture because the Left Behind series and books like The Late Great Planet Earth, written by Hal Lindsay all the way back in the 70s, has impacted you, whether you're aware of that or not. Um, Paul, excuse me, John, according to tradition, and there is strong tradition on this side, that says he wrote it around 95 AD. Now, in weighing the evidence, I personally hold to that view. I respect those who say he wrote it more like 65 A.D., but the truth is, regardless of when he wrote it, we would have to say it is during a time of great persecution, whether the persecution of Nero in 65 A.D. or the persecution of Domitian in 95 A.D. Both of these men encouraged emperor worship. Both of these men strongly vociferously attacked Christianity. And if you refused to follow them and worship the emperor, you would die. John, they, they had tried to kill John. Tradition tells us, and not the scriptures, so listen, but we don't swallow it as gospel truth. But tradition does say... The emperors had tried to kill John because he was the longest living apostle. He was not martyred, the only one of the 12 that was not. They tried, one story says, they tried to boil him in oil in order to kill him, and he did not die. And so the only thing that Domitian could do was exile him to the island of Patmos. And so John, and we're going to read this in just a moment, is on the island of Patmos in exile, probably a Roman penal colony. So if you committed a crime, a serious crime, you went there. And he's experiencing vision after vision after vision. And and can I just say this with respect to these visions? Many times they come to us, John writes it down, and he says, and I saw. Now, That's the literal translation in the Greek. Now, sometimes the NIV and other versions say, then I saw. That's totally fine, but let's realize that there are two perspectives concerning chronology. Okay, chronology is a sequence of events. There is a sequence of events in the visions themselves. Some have sought to say that John was seeing a a chronological sequence from beginning of Revelation to the end, chronological sequence of these visions. Can I suggest to you that that is an unfair perspective of Revelation? Because, and I saw, has to do with John himself, not the visions themselves in chronological order, but rather from John's perspective, he in essence is saying, I saw this vision, and then I saw this vision, and then I saw this vision, and then I saw this vision. As a matter of fact, if you were to look at the end of chapter 11 and the beginning of chapter 12, there is a clear rewind in Revelation because chapter 12 goes back to the birth of Jesus. So can I just caution us that Revelation was not written so that everything that happens in these visions are in chronological order. That's not something that we can demonstrate from the the scriptures. Now, that becomes a little bit more important when it does talk about things in the far distant future in which I'm going to call the end times, okay? However, I'm going to suggest to you that the entire book of Revelation is not about the end times. I think that's that's a mistake that, that many have made and that certain books and movies that have come out have led us to believe, but I think there's a fairer treatment of the book of Revelation that sees only some of it as the distant future, whether that's in our day or not. I know that there are many teachers that travel worldwide and they give conferences on apocalyptic literature, the end times, and they've got their charts, and they can convince you that they're right. Can I just say that the church has been divided over the uh, meaning of this book for 2,000 years, just about? So let's approach it with a little bit more humility. And before we go any further, I want to dig into this very intriguing book that we learn from the get-go is written to seven churches. Just like Paul wrote to the churches in Galatia, or the church at Philadelphia, excuse me, the church at Philippi, or the church in Ephesus, or the church in Colossae. These books are written to city churches as well. However, it's written to seven of them, and not just one. Regardless, we are going to see that this applies to us as well. Just like the letter Paul wrote to the Corinthians, applies to us as well. We're going to need to understand the context of these seven letters that we find in chapters 2 and 3, but we're going to need to see how they apply to us today. So let me begin. I'm going to read the entire chapter, chapter 1, and we're going to dig in from there, okay? Here we go. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John, who testifies to everything he saw. That is the word of God and the testimony of Jesus, a phrase that he repeats several times in his book. Blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it because the time is near. To the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits before his throne and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from, among, from the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priests, to serve his God and Father, to him be glory and power forever and ever. And all God's people said, help me out here, church. Amen. Look, he is coming in the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him and all the peoples of the earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I John your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus was on the island of Patmos before the war, excuse me because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus on the Lord's day I was in the spirit and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet which said Write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me, and when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, and with a golden sash around his chest. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp, double-edged sword. His face was like the sun, shining in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead and behold, I live, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold in and I hold the keys of death and Hades. Write therefore what you see, what you have seen, what is now and what will take place later. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Now, the reason why many in our day become probably the most popular view is that the book of Revelation is Apocalyptic. Now, the reason why they call it apocalyptic is because the very first word in this letter is apocalypsis. We actually get our word apocalypse from this Greek word apocalypsis. However, newsflash, the word apocalypse in our English language is not the same as this Greek word. They're actually quite different. The word apocalypse... In our language, I mean, we've seen many apocalyptic movies, and that means these are movies that deal with the events of the end of the world or the end of our age. But that's not what the word apocalypsis means. The apocalypsis simply means a revealing or a revelation or an uncovering, a disclosure. Now, how on earth do we take this word that means a revelation or a revealing or a disclosure to somehow refer to the end of the world? Well, it's because of this. The phrase that's used here in the beginning, a revelation of Jesus Christ or a revealing of Jesus Christ, is used several times in the New Testament to talk about when Jesus comes again. Now, when you read this phrase, when Jesus Christ is revealed, such as in 2 Thessalonians 2, one, the man of lawlessness, who is revealed, when Jesus Christ is revealed, he will destroy the man of lawlessness with the breath of his mouth, it says. Several times in the New Testament, this phrase is used to refer to when Jesus comes again. And so for that reason, when Jesus comes at the end of the age, we have taken the word apocalypsis and we have turned it into an English word, apocalypse, which now refers to the end of the age. I'm just saying that even though it's used several ways like that in the New Testament, it's also used several ways. That is a revelation of Jesus Christ to not talk about when Jesus comes again, but simply when, when Jesus reveals himself, such as in Galatians 1.12. In Galatians 1:12 let me just find where I am in all of this. Galatians 1:12 it says Paul referring to how he is an apostle because the gospel has been revealed to him, okay? He says it this way. He says, "I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by exactly as Revelation 1:1 reads." a revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, that it's used this way to simply talk about how Jesus personally came to Paul. More than likely in his three years in the Arabian desert in which Jesus spoke to him and taught him one-on-one the gospel. And it's for this reason that Paul ends up writing the more letters than anyone else in the New Testament because Jesus revealed himself. And and, and it's not just Jesus revealing things about the gospel. Jesus revealed himself to him. Jesus, because the gospel is all about Jesus. So I'm going to suggest that it would be unfair, as we look now at the, the book of Revelation, to say that because the word apocalypsis is used, this is an apocalyptic letter, okay? Now, can I say this in all fairness to Revelation? There are many times in which the vision clearly refers to the end of this age and when Jesus returns. The last half of Revelation 19, I believe it refers to when Jesus comes again. He's on his white horse, etc. Yeah, that's when Jesus comes back. We're going to find several times in, well, we probably won't because at this point my goal is not to get into chapters 6 through 22, but if I do, and I prayed about this, if I do, I will probably look at it thematically, which simply means we would look at the beast and what that even means and how it applied to us. We would look at this concept of martyrdom. We would look at this thousand-year reign of Christ. We would look at the, the harlot of Babylon and what that even is. Is that just simply something at the end of the age? I'm going to suggest, though, that it's not. So when we look at Revelation, I think it's going to be unfair to say it all just refers to the end of the age because that makes it a closed book to many of us because we may not be in those end times. It was very relevant to the seven churches because they were going through tremendous tribulation. And we're going to look at that in just a moment. But this is an open book to us, church. It's not closed, it's not just for that generation that sees Jesus coming again, it's written for all generations. And so I I think we need to be fair to the book of Revelation. Let's not just simply place it in this category called apocalyptic literature. Some of it does refer to it. But I believe that if, if if, if, if those who view Revelation as apocalyptic, I would say they would say this much of the book refers to the apocalypse. I would say in all fairness, it's probably more like this or this. And that there is so much that I believe is simply not apocalyptic, all right? So, we may not get to those last chapters, six through 22. They don't play a large deal in these first five chapters, but we're going to look at chapter one as an introduction. We're going to look at the seven letters, and then we're going to look at chapters 14 and 15, which is John standing in heaven, and he sees this amazing worship, of the angels, of the four living creatures, of the 24 elders, and who on earth are they? And then a little bit later, he talks about the church, and we we might look at chapter 7 where we see that, but there is just this amazing worship that takes place there. And you actually see throughout this letter John receives several revelations several visions and the focus of all of this by the way is Jesus Christ that's what verse 1 tells me this all has its focus on Jesus Christ even though it has to do with judgments on men it all comes back to Jesus and then we're going to see <clears throat> excuse me that John <clears throat> receives these visions and then there is a portion, sometimes half a chapter, sometimes a couple of chapters, then he's in heaven and he sees what's going on in heaven. And then he's back as if he has an aerial view of earth and then he's back in heaven, back and forth like this, back and forth. Many times, it's a pattern that we see, and this is no different in which he is caught up, he is, he's in the spirit on the Lord's day which is more than likely the first day of the week, though this is the only time that this phrase is ever used in the Bible, the Lord's Day. It, historically, there are some who talk about the Lord's Day, and they say it's Sunday. Um, I would imagine that it is the first day of the week. Um, but this is John, the first day of the week. The Lord's Day would refer more than likely to his resurrection, which took place on what day of the week, church? Sunday. The first day of the week. So that's why. But it's it's more than likely a Sunday. This is John. He's having a vision of Jesus. We're going to see how this vision that he has at the end of the chapter and how descriptive it is. We're going to see how these descriptions of Jesus that John writes, and there's many of them, then play into the seven letters. Because all seven letters are introduced in the very first verse, referring to it uh, roughly two of these aspects that John describes at the end of chapter one, two aspects of Jesus, all right, that he's the faithful and true witness. He's the Alpha and the Omega, that his face shines like the sun. And, and we need to then ask, why, why does John even have this very unusual picture, vision of Jesus? Because I can assure you that when Jesus walked upon the earth, he did not have a robe that reached to his feet with a sash around his wa- waist that was gold. His face didn't glow. His feet weren't like sh- shiny bronze or, or um, bronze that had been heated up in the furnace. That his eyes didn't glow like fire, I would imagine maybe red. But he was just like you and me, just like a normal human being. So this is a picture of, and we need to see the symbolism is it. And, it, and what we're going to discover is that those two, qu- those two characteristics that John has in his vision of Jesus in this chapter, they actually set the tone or the theme of that letter. And we're going to need to discover this. Every letter has a different theme. But then the question is that we're going to need to ask is, why does he, why does Jesus write these seven letters through John to these churches And then John has this vision of worship in heaven. What's the connection? It feels disjointed, but it's not. And we're going to need to ask that question. What's going on then in chapters 4 and 5? So here we see that this is prophetic. This is something that has been, is, and will be. And John is writing it down. There is a blessing for those who read it, excuse me, yes, who read it, who listen to it, and then take it to heart. And so as we go through these five chapters, church, I'm going to encourage you, read it, listen to it, and then I want you to take it to heart. Seriously take it to heart. When you do that, there is a blessing in this. There's a richness in this. Then Paul, excuse me, Paul, John, then John And if I ever say, Paul, forgive me, that just happens in my mind sometimes. This is John's book about this revelation of Jesus Christ. It's not all apocalyptic. It is a revelation. He says that it's to these seven churches, but then he dedicates, or or, excuse me, then he speaks of This grace and peace, just like Paul does in many of his, grace and peace to all of you who this, that, or who have been sanctified by the blood of Jesus. And grace and peace to the saints in Philippi and and these. and, And John does that too here. John says grace and peace to you. And he speaks of the one who is and who was and who is to come. But that's not Jesus. That's God the Father then to the seven spirits. What an interesting phrase. It's the only time in which the Holy Spirit is mentioned in the plural. Seven spirits. Now we know that the Holy Spirit, everywhere else in the New Testament and in the Old Testament, is singular. Spirit, not spirits. For this reason, some have suggested maybe what he means is the sevenfold spirit or seven-faceted spirit. We talk about the seven eyes, which refer to the spirit in Zechariah. I'm not going to get into that right now, but I will say this, that it is more than likely taking this number seven and not just dealing with it literally, like there are seven literal separate spirits that somehow make up the Holy Spirit, but that this number seven is used symbolically here. You're going to actually find, if you you want to treat Revelation fairly and not read into it with an end times mindset, but look at the scriptures and let it speak to you, you're going to discover that many times numbers are used symbolically and they're not to be taken literally. Okay? Much of this in Revelation is symbolic. I don't know of anyone who takes the beast as literal. He's not just just some beast with claws and fangs. No, he's a person. He is described in a certain way that is symbolic. He does not literally ride on the back. Excuse me, the woman does not literally ride on the back of this beast because he's not a literal animal or a literal beast. We, we may get into that sometime, we, we may not, but my focus is the first five chapters. This, the, the numbers, not all of them, I'm not saying that, but many of the numbers are symbolic. So we're going to need to really approach Revelation with a humble mindset, and I pray that I will as well as I teach from it, but this seven spirits or sevenfold or seven-faceted spirit of God refers to his perfection his absolute perfection and in and of himself he is complete and so god so god had jesus has him see it in the number 7 so the the third and it's it's unusual it's the father then it's the spirit then it's the son rather than the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, which is generally the, the the formula, if you will, when you're talking about God, God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, right? When you go baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, right? And th- that's kind of a formula that's used in, sh- in the New Testament. But here, he breaks that formula, and I'm going to suggest, because number one, it's not a formula, but number two, he wants to end with the very person that this whole book is about, Jesus Christ. And he goes into great detail in describing him. He says, <laughs> he is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. Now, I'm not gonna get into that because you're gonna, we're gonna see them used late, later in the seven letters. So I'm not gonna deal with them right now, but I will say this. The next section that we see here is now a dedication. This book is dedicated and is about Jesus Christ to him. Do you see that in verse 5? In verse to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. The very first thing that he wants to let these seven churches know who are going through this persecution is Jesus loves you. He is so in love with you. His heart is for you. He's not against you. He hasn't kicked you to the curb. He hasn't forgotten about you. He is not so busy with all of his duties to say, oh yeah, I forgot about Mike Curtis down there or Lauren Oletter and Mickey Leonard. I I'm, Wow, I need to get back to these jobs too. And it's not like he's up there spinning so many plates that some of them start crashing to the floor. That's not Jesus. He loves you. He sees your persecution. He sees the tribulation and the difficulties that you are going through. And right now, to begin the letter, he John feels he needs to describe this Jesus that he's having a revelation. He loves you. That everything flows from this. Even the trials that you are going through and how you're going through them. This is is Jesus saying to them, I love you. I've not abandoned you. I have such good purposes for you, even if, just like Antipas that we're going to look at in a few weeks, dies from martyrdom. Jesus loved him. And my pastor's heart would say Jesus even wept for him, but Jesus loves him even as he loves every single, that's the very first truth John wants to communicate to these seven churches and to us. Regardless of what happens, regardless of these bowls of wrath and the seals that are opened, Jesus loves you. It can feel sometimes like that's not the truth, but he wants to just start a bedrock truth. Jesus, oh, he loves you. Look at the next phrase who freed you or has freed us from our sins by his blood. Now we just sang a song that talked about the very fact that we have been forgiven by the blood of Jesus. And this is a bedrock solid truth church. But Jesus' death on the cross, his blood that was spilled for me is more than just the fact that now my sins are forgiven. That that, that, don't, misunderstand me, that is a truth that I'm not wanting to push aside or crowd out, but there is more to the truth of the cross than just simply my sins are forgiven by the blood of Jesus. But by that blood, he rescued me. He has come to free me from those that sin. He didn't just come to wave a magic At last, now all of your sins are forgiven. No matter what you do, no matter how you live, there's grace and you're just forgiven. There's truth, though, in what I'm saying. I'm not trying to be sarcastic. There's more to it. The blood of Jesus purchased us the blood of jesus didn't just forgive us of our sins the blood of jesus canceled the power of sin and its mastery over us so that now we are free the chains have fallen it's up to you you need to make this decision relying and being empowered relying upon and being empowered by his grace to walk out of the prison cell but it's too many times people wander back into the prison cells they even slap themselves on the wrists with their chains. I would venture to say, to make the analogy or illustration here more solid theologically, those chains do not lock because we have been freed from them. Then why act as a slave? Why act as a prisoner? Now understand the significance of this phrase. People are becoming discouraged. You're going to find this in... in all but one of the, the letters, as I'm recalling correctly, that they are compromising. In some way, they're doing, some of them are doing so well, but there is compromise. And they are going back to sins. Some of them giving up. Some of them just saying, ah, it is so hard to fight the world, I'll just join them. And he's saying, no. No. You were, the blood of Jesus didn't come to just forgive you, but to set you free. So walk in that freedom. So even though he doesn't say it like I'm saying it now, he is certainly implying it. Listen, not only does he love you, but his blood was spilled to free you, break the chains to free you from those sins not just wash them away, but free you from its stranglehold and the very fact that it wants to squeeze the very life of God out of you. That's that's the nature of sin. It is no longer a master. The next thing that he says here is that he has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father. To him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Now, I believe that, that... The word to be that you just heard me read is not technically in the Greek and it is supplied. And I'm just going to let you know that that is fair to do because sometimes the Greek does not supply the, the, the word to be in a verse. You have to do it. But it does not, it's not properly understood this way, that he has made a kingdom for us. Because then we would have to say that he has made priests for us. That doesn't make any sense. So I believe the NIV is true here, and there's a, I'm coming to a point. He has made us to be a kingdom. He didn't just make a kingdom for us. He made us to be a kingdom and to be priests. We see this repeated in chapter 5 in which he says this. They sing a song in, it, in to the Lamb of God and he says, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You, Jesus, by his blood, you made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our god and they will reign on earth forever and ever church he has called you to be a kingdom now i'm going to take only a moment here most people when theologians when they talk about the kingdom make a distinguishing point here that the kingdom of god is not the church they base that on numerous scriptures, not the least of which is when in Matthew 13 Jesus gives a parable of the weeds. Excuse me, the wheat and the the weeds, or the darnell that look like wheat until the heads open. That's that's a, a weed called darnell. That's the actual Greek word that's used in there. It's a specific type of weed. He refers to the seed that's planted in that field when he gives the interpretation of the parable. That the, those seeds are the sons. Of the kingdom. So let me just say from the get-go that when we're talking about the kingdom of God, it is fair to say that from one perspective, we are simply servants in the kingdom. That's fair to say. But Jesus also said, and I don't want to lose you here, but Jesus also said, the kingdom of God is in you. And when you start wrapping your mind, okay, so I'm not only in the kingdom, but the, the, the kingdom is in me? Yes. And so because of that, I would tell you, John is saying here, you are that kingdom. I'm not just a subject or a member of the kingdom, but from another perspective, I am that kingdom. As we together link arm in arm as his church, we are a kingdom. Now, the significance of this is (coughs) that if if, if the kingdom loses ground, the subjects can back away and, granted, the enemy takes more land. And when he encroaches upon the remainder of that kingdom, we can back up and surrender more land to him. But you see, John, needs he's trying to communicate something. You know, the enemy is not just attacking, like, America. He's attacking the Christians in America. He's, we're not just surrendering land to him. We're surrendering our souls to him. This is a battle for our souls because the kingdom of God, should it be encroached upon, the kingdom of God is in us. It is the rule and the reign of Jesus Christ, not just among us, but in us. So this is about your heart being not just a servant of the kingdom, but the kingdom. He has made you a kingdom. Now, I just spoke to you about the negative side. When the kingdom now advances, we see the kingdom of God birthed in hearts. And the kingdom of God, it's not just some realm with a ruler, but the kingdom of God is you and me, and it's now that sinner who has repented, and the Spirit of God now lives in them. They are now fixed and fitted into to that kingdom. They are the kingdom. Paul, excuse me. John, John. I'm, I'm going to go home, and I'm going to say this like 100 times. John, John. Revelation, John, John. John... John. John is wanting to communicate to those who are on the edge of compromise. Guys, this Jesus that I'm having a revelation of, he loves you. His blood was spilled to forgive you, but to free you because he wanted to do something. He is making you his kingdom. Does that seem a little odd? Well, let me just also say, you are the new Jerusalem as well, coming out of heaven from God. It's not just a city separate from us. We, we could get into that a little bit later. I've done that at other times. Um, but you are that city. You are that kingdom. Because God's kingdom is not just land or a realm. It is you and me. And we are fighting in this battle, and it is about your heart. And are you going to give up? Are you just going to capitulate and surrender, or are you going to fight? And this whole book then speaks to this point. John, is how, Jesus, how can I encourage them to continue this fight, even if it means they die? Hmm. How do we how does he do this? And he he does it as just in the very beginning of this book with these very simple concepts. I I, I'm looking at the time here and I do need to to move on. But he then goes, he launches into this diatribe, this, this picture of Jesus. And it's not only this book dedicated to him, but he sees this Jesus as the one who is coming in the clouds. And every eye will see him. And the world will mourn because they have rejected him. I see no secret rapture here, church. I see a Jesus coming triumphantly, and the world will mourn because they rejected him. I'm going to get into the Alpha and the Omega later because that's one of the keys. That's one of the descriptions in, in the letters. Get into that later. It says here in verse 12, I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man. This The seven golden lampstands, we're told at the end of this chapter, represents the seven churches. Can I suggest to you that though these were written to seven literal churches with literal problems that needed literal encouragement, the number seven is very purposeful. I suppose he could have chosen eight, but he chose seven to represent the expansiveness and completeness of what Jesus needed to say to these churches, to you and me. He didn't choose five or six, but seven. There is a completeness here. There is a truth that is eternal that he is wanting to communicate here, even in this number seven. But these are seven golden lampstands. Jesus is standing amongst them. He's not distant from them. Now, this is, of course, important because he is speaking to these churches and the trials they're going through. And in essence, he's saying, Jesus is right there where two or more are gathered. There I am in their midst. Jesus is right there in their midst. He is like a son of man. This is the phrase taken directly from Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, in which Daniel sees one like a son of man being ushered before the ancient of days. And all the nations and kingdoms were given to him to serve him. (laughs) This is Jesus. Jesus used the phrase son of man. And he was accused of blasphemy because that is a phrase taken from Daniel 7. He was claiming to be that person in which all nations would worship and serve. That's blasphemy, they claimed. Well, I guess not if you're God. And so here is Jesus, like a son of man, taken directly from the pages of Daniel 7, verse 13. When John sees Jesus, before Jesus says anything to him, I mean, he calls while his back is turned and he turns around. But when he sees Jesus, right before Jesus says, right there in verse, um, get my glasses on here. In verse 17, do not be afraid. It says he falls down like a dead man. And I'm just going to say this. We see this happening in the book of Daniel. We see it happening here in which when someone like Saul encounters a vision of Jesus, they fall to the ground. There is this overwhelming sense of power of authority of holiness of this otherness of god that is so distant from us as sinful creatures and finite in our being that saul when he sees jesus shining in the at noonday like the sun he falls to the ground both daniel in daniel 10 and here in revelation they do this because it's as if all their energy is drained from them and they fall down like dead men. What I'm, gonna, what I'm saying here then is this vision was overwhelming emotionally to his senses. Him as a human being, it was, it was almost suffocating to him, being a fallen creature rescued by the blood of the lamb, but nevertheless still not completely redeemed, like will happen at the end of the age. And he is experiencing the holiness and the altogether otherness of God. And he falls down like a dead man. And, church, I, I, I'm just going to say this gives us then a picture of this amazing person called Jesus that is now about to speak to our hearts with such authority and with such power that should we view his glory unveiled as John did, and and Daniel, by the way, it was an angel. Not, Not as far as I know was it a manifestation of Jesus, it was an angel and he still fell down because of his glory and altogether otherness. So very different than Daniel. John falls down. We can I just assure you that if we saw Jesus in his unveiled glory, and that's yeah. the sense that we get from this, not his veiled glory that he walked upon, well, well, he why he had when he was upon earth in his earthly ministry, but here in his unveiled glory, symbolic as it is, John falls down. I said it right, John, not Paul. John falls down. And for for Paul. He was blinded for three days. That's how it impacted him. That that is how God's glory manifested in the sky for Paul, manifested in front of him like John. That's how it impacted them. This then, I, I... my prayer is that we would take this sense of Jesus's glory through every single one of these letters and just understand it is him that John fell down before as a dead man who is now going to speak to you and is going to open your heart to be able to speak truth into you hard as it is sometimes in order to revive us, in order to speak truth and life and hope especially to those who are saying, ah, I'm just ready to throw in the towel. Oh, no, 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 no. And so the visions continue on. And of course, at the very end, we see in chapter 19, Jesus coming on his, on his white horse. And we see this culmination of history as Jesus's triumph. But I'm just going to close with this. Let's realize something here. That it is easy for us in our limited understanding of defeat and victory to see life from this perspective. I guess if Christians die, they were defeated. I guess if Christians live long lives, then Jesus, or or they are victorious. Your life, has nothing to do with the quantity of your days, but it has everything to do with the quality of your days. Are you going to choose to live fully for Jesus, or are you going to give up, or just throw your life into neutral, eh, whatever? Why work? So, why, why, why sacrifice so much, and just think it's worth nothing? What you do in that moment reverberates into eternity. The choices that you make, that is the essence of your faith. That is what this life is about. And it is about laying that life down. If it means death, it means death. Jesus said, deny self, take up your cross and follow me. It's not just a nice little phrase. Oh, yeah, take up my cross. That means I got to bear with my spouse or bear with my, you know, christian friend or no that means are you willing to die for him so church i'm just i want to just leave you with this this life it's not all about what we can gain from it it's not all about uh, how happy that we can be it is not all about what i can acquire and how long i get to live to enjoy it our lives are so short. It is about how you choose every day to follow Jesus. And the grace that when you make that true make that choice as weak as you can feel, Jesus, I am choosing to follow you. He empowers you by that grace to live a radical life for him. Living or dying, living for him not giving up, throwing in the towel, shifting into neutral, but every day saying, Jesus, this is so hard, but I will follow you. No turning back. No turning back. This life, it's all about you. I'm living for Jesus. Can you stand with me? I just want us to pray right now. And it Today or next several Sundays that we go through these five chapters, my prayer is that the Spirit of God is going to speak to your heart in your specific situation. Today, I want to close in prayer, and I want to ask you, what's the Spirit of God speaking to your heart? How are you choosing today to live for Him? That is so crucial. Father, I, I just ask you right now, that your spirit would speak to our hearts. Show us Jesus. God, please, show us this one that John fell down before, overwhelmed in his spirit. The triumphant one. The one who loved him freedom from his sins made him a part of his kingdom made him a priest to serve God I just ask you father give us that vision of Jesus that amazing Jesus that loved us and called us to be his own and I just ask you father today can you just continue to speak truth to us Reviver spirit wherever we need encouragement would you do that just speak life and encouragement to us we lay again we may, we're making a choice we're laying our life before you my life is completely in your hands regardless of how hard because it's not about me it's about you thank you God seal these words in our heart Father please in Jesus name I pray